Good morning, brothers and sisters. Let's pray as we begin. Uh, Father, we give you thanks for your word to us, and we pray that as we hear it, that you would speak, make yourself known, and help us to live for you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Well, isolation and God's love. Uh, This uh, wasn't the sermon I had planned to preach today, uh, but it's crazy how quickly things change at the moment, isn't it? But unlike our changing circumstances, God's word is unchangingly relevant and timely. And so I thought I'd stick to Proverbs 25, which I was going to preach on anyway, uh, even though I'm taking quite a different angle on it. One of the less publicised consequences of the global pandemic we're under at the moment is the fear and damage to people caused by isolation. You know, here in Sydney, uh, we're now in compulsory self-isolation territory if you have any symptoms or have been overseas. And we may soon get to complete enforced lockdown. In fact, some schools and universities and organisations are already there. Now, maybe you think a few weeks or months off college sounds okay. okay? Give you a bit of time to catch up on Netflix, I mean doctrine readings. Uh, But maybe more seriously, no, you really feel we should lock college down right now. And I get there are good, loving reasons why you might think that, uh, to slow the spread of sickness, uh, to give health services more time to respond and not be overwhelmed. But even as we think about it, we need to keep in mind the desire to isolate can also be for self-serving reasons. That is, I don't really care what happens to them, I just don't want them near me so I don't get sick. Not only that, but it's a complex issue because isolation itself, as I said, can have serious damaging effects. Uh, The epidemic itself is slowing in China, but there is a new wave of anxiety sweeping the country due to loneliness and lack of interaction while people are still under quarantine in their homes. And the language that's being used is of a social recession. That is a collapse in social contact that has deep and dire consequences for people's lives. Uh, One researcher put it this way. The value of social connection is baked into our nervous system. I think there's a quote coming up on the screen. Is baked into our nervous system such that the absence of such a protective force creates a stress state in the body. Loneliness causes stress, and long-term or chronic stress leads to more frequent elevations of cortisol. This, in turn, damages blood vessels and other tissues, increasing the risk of heart disease, diabetes, joint disease, depression, obesity, and premature death. And you know what? This observation actually rings true with what the Bible says about our nature. God made us as relational beings. We're only truly whole when we're connected to each other, with each other, and most importantly, connected in right relationship to the God who loves us. So is it any wonder that when we're cut off from contact and relationship with other people for an extended period of time, we start to come apart, emotionally, mentally, even physically? So let's turn to Proverbs 25, which I think shows us God's vaccine against soul-destroying isolation and its life-giving fellowship. 
to pour ourselves out to each other in love because God has poured himself out to us in love. And we're going to do our practice of working through the passage sequentially under three headings. Uh, God uses power for righteousness, verses 2 to 5. So use your position to serve, verses 6 to 15, and your relationships to bring grace, verses uh, 16 to 27. And finally, love in the time of coronavirus. So first, uh, the first point the passage makes is that God uses his power for righteousness. Pick it up in verse 2. And as we go through the chapter, I'm going to give a slightly more literal translation at points to try and bring out some of the connections that run through the chapter and bind it together. So verse 2. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. As the heavens are high and the earth is deep, there is no searching out the heart of kings. Remove the dross from the silver and a silversmith can produce a vessel. Remove wicked officials from the king's presence and his throne will be established in righteousness. So basically these verses uh, set the major authorities over the world in their relative places. Verse 2, God is the ultimate ruler of everything. And as ultimate ruler, it is his prerogative and his prerogative alone to reveal some things about his world while others he keeps concealed and completely beyond our comprehension. In verse 3, he delegates a portion of his authority to human kings to carry out his will on earth. But the king can't do it alone, so verses 4 to 5, he needs all his court officials around him committed to that same goal as well. And what is that goal? Verse 5, righteousness. God wants righteousness to flow from him through the king and his court to fill every corner of society in his kingdom. Now, when we hear the word righteousness, uh, we often think of rules or morals that an individual might follow. But true biblical righteousness is much richer than that and far more positive. It includes rules and morals, but those rules and morals are designed to foster fellowship. That is, deep, stable relationships of love that form the framework for good to flow freely between people. And so verses 2 to 5 in the end tell us the God to whom all power belongs is fiercely and utterly committed to doing good to all those under his rule. And that remains true even if the full picture of exactly how that works may be concealed from us for now. I think that's so critical to hold in our hearts and minds in a crisis where many of us fear isolation and feel out of control. Whatever happens in the coming months or years, whatever, These verses remind us that God is committed to his righteous rule and he will never leave us. And so in this context, our true need and comfort is not to be able to reach out and grab a pack of toilet paper or rice or whatever. It's to be able to reach out to the righteous God who loves us 
and already holds us in his strong hands. It reminds me a little bit of teaching uh, my boys to swim. This is a picture of Harry. Uh, That's my youngest. Uh, But you could pick any one of them. Uh, When he was young, Harry loved swimming, still loved swimming. Uh, But when he was young, as long as he had enough floaties uh, on to raise the Titanic, pretty much, and his head stayed well above water. He hated getting his face wet. My goal, on the other hand, was to dunk him whenever I could. And, and he couldn't understand why, you know, when he was perfectly happy, bobbing around like an overgrown cork with two jumping castles on his arms. But why did I do it? Why did I put him through it? It's very simple, isn't it? Because I wanted him to know the joy of swimming properly doing bombs off the side, uh, going surfing with mates, snorkelling and seeing up close the wonderful sea creatures that God had made, hopefully with a spear gun. (laughs) So he could bring me home some tasty dinner. But you see, to do all that, he needed to get his head dunked because he needed to learn how to swim properly. And yes, it was horrible at the time, but he was always safe in my hands. And if he could have seen what was on the other side, he would have seen it's all worth it. It's all for his good and joy. And that's like what Proverbs tells us about God. Whatever you experience, no matter how isolated you feel, you are never alone. God loves you. He will never leave you and nothing, no virus, no fear, no loneliness, not even death itself, can snatch you from his grip. And if you needed any more proof of that, you only have to look at God's own son, Jesus. The true righteous king that Proverbs ultimately testifies to and the one the Bible is ultimately all about. Who, as our New Testament reading in Philippians said, laid down his life to draw us to God's embrace. So, brothers and sisters, when you feel afraid or alone, the Bible says, run to God. Hear his voice tell you he loves you. See his son give his life for you. And cling to him, no matter what your circumstance. Relationship with the righteous God, that is true life. But Proverbs 25 doesn't just leave it there because it moves on to our response to God's love. And the particular way that it does it is by verses 6 to 15, focusing on the role the court officials have in supporting their righteous king. And the basic thrust of this section is if that you truly grasp that God uses his position of ultimate power to serve you, then the only proper way to use your position of power is to serve others. In other words, verses 6 and 7, with humility. Do not boast about yourself before the king and do not stand up in a place of greatness, for it's better for him to say to you, come up here, than to be demoted before a noble. Verses 8 to 10, with integrity. What your eyes have seen, do not bring quickly as a case, lest what will you do afterward when your neighbour humiliates you? Bring your case to your neighbour, but don't reveal another's secrets, lest the hearer disgrace you 
and your bad reputation does not leave you. So you work with humility and integrity and why? So that through you, others experience the beauty and refreshment of God's serving righteousness. Verses 11 to 15. Like apples of gold in settings of silver. Ah, beautiful. Is a word spoken upon its fitting time. A gold earring or an ornament of fine gold is a wise correction upon an ear, ready to hear. Like a snow-cooled drink on the day of harvest, the faithful messenger to the one who sends him, he refreshes the spirit of his master. Like clouds and wind without rain is like one who boasts of gifts that are a lie. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. I really love particularly verse 13, such a beautiful image, like a snow-cooled drink on the day of harvest, the faithful messenger to the one who sends him, he refreshes the spirit of his master. Uh, It reminds me of something like a frozen Coke on a 40-degree day. You know, you've been working outdoors in the heat, your mouth is dry, you're just wilting away, you've got no energy left, you get to the Macca's drive-thru, and the instant that cup hits your hand and you suck on that straw, woof! Your whole body perks up. You feel great. You know, you're having fun giving yourself multiple brain freezes. You're just refreshed. It's so good. And Proverbs says that's like the person who uses their power and position to serve others in righteousness. They refresh other people with God's love. And so this section calls on us to think carefully and to observe carefully the formal positions and organisations that we are a part of. To work out their dynamics, how decisions are made, how and with whom power flows in the structure. Not so you can manipulate it for your own gain, but so that whatever position you are put in the pile whether you're the king's right-hand man, sorry, whether you're the king's right-hand man or the court jester, whether you're the CEO or the coffee boy, you understand God has placed you there to do good to others from your position. And so if you're at the top, it means you don't be proud. Don't think it's because of your brilliance and how much God really needs you there. And if he puts you at the bottom, you don't try and snatch and grab your way to the top. Those selfish impulses come to us so easily, don't they? Especially in a crisis when the pressure's on. But as we've seen across our screens in the last few weeks, it's so ugly, isn't it? So we've got to fight it in our hearts. Stop, look, and think about the opportunity the God who uses his power in humble service of others is giving you to share in his good work by placing you where he has. And seek especially to support and refresh those God has placed over you and given responsibility for your care. And I think there's a particular point of application, especially for our college students, even though I think the principle applies to anyone in a formal power structure. 
Uh, but most of you are student ministers at the moment and will go on to be assistants or workers under another's, another's authority. And look, let's face it, ministry can be a long, hard slog. And so when you get out, your senior may seem a little bit old school to you and waning in energy and fervour. Right? You might have fresh ideas and a spring in your step. You, might, you may well be better theologically trained than they are. And you may feel that you're more competent for ministry than they are. And in that situation, there's a great potential to get frustrated and impatient and begin to undermine their ministry. But these verses challenge you to be a humble, faithful servant who refreshes their master. doesn't mean you don't challenge them or question them or critique them or never have any conflict with them. But it does mean that you work hard to do it appropriately under their authority. As verse 15 says, through patience, gentleness, and persuasion. So I've started to think to myself, and I think it's quite a helpful thing to do, how can I be a ministry frozen coke <laughs> to my senior minister, my boss, others on my team, anyone in my church or organisation? Again, from Philippians 2, you know, can I work on my Christ-like character in response to Jesus? My communication and my motives so that those around me feel refreshed and energised in righteousness. And that'd be great. And I also think this attitude is very important in our context of social upheaval. Uh, you know, from my experiences of being in positions of authority or having friends who are now, it's really complex and difficult to lead people and lead an organisation well, isn't it? Uh, holding together all the different strands and interests and needs of various people and making the best decision you can for the good of all. And so I think another immediate implication of these verses is that we as a Christian fellowship and community uphold and support our members of government and try and minimise our criticism of them, which, let's face it, as Aussies, we're not very good at doing. But we also uphold and support those particularly responsible for distributing our basic needs to those who need it most. Uh, I really love the initiative that people have come up with in partnership with our major supermarkets to set aside the first shopping hour of the day for the elderly and disabled. I think it's a wonderful way to use our systems of power and distribution to show love to those who need it most. And so we, as people who know God's love, uh, need to keep on thinking and devoting and pioneering new ways to keep on doing that for our society. So use your position to refresh people in righteousness. And finally, verses 16 to 27, use your relationships to bring grace. Verses 16 to 27 uh, move from official power structures to the way that God's righteous love should flow out from them to impact us in our everyday informal life and relationships, the cut and thrust of the everyday and it really wants to ram home that God's righteousness shouldn't just penetrate our structures and systems, it should penetrate into our hearts. He wants us to love our neighbour as ourselves. 
And in fact, this whole section from verses 16 to 27 is driven by a play on words on the Hebrew word for neighbour. It starts verse 16 with this metaphor of eating honey. If you find honey, eat just enough. Too much of it, and you'll vomit. Right, point's pretty simple, isn't it? Honey, it's tasty. It's energising, gives you strength. But if you don't discipline and constrain your consumption, you just keep sucking it down, you'll undo what it was meant to do. Comes back up, <coughs> leaves you sick. Verse 17, that's also you. And the impact that you can have on others in your relationship with them. Verse 17, seldom set foot in your neighbour's house too much of you and he'll become your hater. Now, just in case you know, you're the antisocial type who likes to withdraw, this is not an excuse to be antisocial. Right? Uh, it's better actually translated, be precious about setting foot in your neighbour's house. See, in the Bible, being a neighbour is a good thing. We're meant to be deeply committed to giving and receiving support for one another. We're meant to be part of each other's lives. Uh, many of you will know that a couple of years ago, my wife Chrissy got leukaemia and we were so thankful for our neighbours, our family, our friends, our literal neighbours here in the college community, constantly being in our house to clean and cook and look after the kids. It was a huge part in us getting through that very difficult period. So these verses aren't talking about that. Now what it's saying is don't selfishly impose yourself on another's hospitality. Don't sponge off them. And in fact, to my shame, uh, I did this exact thing, I think, to a friend in my uni days. I pretty much used him as a taxi service, a hotel, a two-minute noodle kitchen, all with very little thanks and too much imposition. And so these verses challenge you to think about the impact of your behaviour and your relationships on the people around you in your everyday life. Are there people that even now, as you reflect, you realise actually the relationship is a little bit one way? I've taken their goodwill for granted and imposed on their patience a little too much. Maybe you need to think about changing the way you relate to them, even out the giving and receiving, so that your neighbour doesn't become your hater. And in fact, that's what we see in verses 18 to 20. Uh, there is a string of metaphorical plays on words that illustrate how failing to discipline your drives towards loving your neighbour actually leads to destruction of relationships. Like a club or a sword or a sharp arrow is one who gives false testimony against a neighbour. Like a broken tooth or a lame foot is reliance on the unfaithful in a time of trouble. Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like vinegar poured on a wound is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. And don't some of those proverbs just resonate so closely with some of the behaviour that we've seen around us in the panic and fear that drives people to selfishly take away things others need or spite people to their face. The Bible is so true to life, isn't it? It's like an expert doctor for our souls. It's so good at identifying and diagnosing our deepest problems. 
and the antidote that we truly need. And that's what we get in verses 21 to 22. The solution to the neighbour who has become your hater is to lay aside your pride, humble yourself and meet them with grace at their point of need. If the one who hates you is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Uh, Verse 22 is a little bit ambiguous, hard to understand. It could be taken either as punishment, heap burning coals on his head, or grace, uh, take burning coals off his head. Uh, The word can actually mean either one. Uh, But I think if we read the two verses together in the context of the chapter, I think in Proverbs it's actually about showing grace, that is taking away the cause of anger. But whatever the case, I think the overall thrust of the verses is clear. If you have experienced God's self-giving love for you, it cannot help but transform you from hater to neighbour, from self-serving to self-giving, from looking out for number one to looking out for one another. But it is not an automatic thing, something we need to keep working at, committing to and praying about. Well, let me wrap up. Uh, Love in the time of coronavirus. Uh, That's the title of quite a few articles that have come out now, and it's quite a clever spin-off of the famous book Love in the Time of Cholera. The article I read was by Andy Crouch, who's one of the editors of Christianity Today, and I found it really thought-provoking and challenging about the opportunity that coronavirus and the isolation that coronavirus results in the opportunity that it gives us to sow the message of Jesus' love into the world that is full of fear and aloneness. And in his article, he highlights the work of Rodney Stark on how the early church grew in the rise of Christianity. And he notes that one of the key factors was how Christians responded to epidemics and plagues. And so unlike the rest of the people, they didn't flee and abandon the weak and vulnerable to their fate. They stayed and served and cared, often at great risk to themselves. And this was a major contributor to more and more people becoming Christians. Here's what Crouch says, and note how his language ties in to Proverbs 25. After you had recovered from the plague, after all, where would you want to worship? The pagan temple, whose priests and elite benefactors had fled at the first sign of trouble? or the household of the neighbour who had brought you food and water, care and concern, at great risk to themselves. When this plague has passed, which uh, refers to the coronavirus, what will our neighbours remember of us? Will they remember that the Christians took immediate, decisive action to protect the vulnerable, even at great personal and organisational cost? Will they remember that their Christian neighbours were able to visit the needy, while protecting them by keeping appropriate social distance, provide for their needs and bring them hope. That's how the Christian fellowship needs to respond to the isolation brought about by coronavirus. Of course, it all sounds great, but how do we actually do it? One of the frustrating things is I can't really think that clearly of how, 
and as I've tried to find it online, there's not actually that many practical suggestions. I think some are starting to trickle out, and some of them are really good. So I found this uh, great card doing the rounds on social media. Very simple, uh, just gives you contact details, and then um, uh, presents an opportunity uh, for someone to actually nominate what you can do to help them. I think that would be a great start, but I think it's scratching the surface, isn't it? So, you know, our mission week in a couple of weeks, I think, is another opportunity where we can put our minds together. How can we keep reaching out to those who will feel very isolated uh, by this uh, pandemic? How do we keep uh, putting these things out and enabling God's people to demonstrate to the world that the true antidote to the isolation and fear of coronavirus is to keep reaching out with the life-giving love to our neighbour. Because in Jesus, God has reached out in life-giving love to us. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that in our weakness, in our isolation, in the loneliness of being cut off from you and cut off from life. You reached out at great cost, cared for us, loved us and drew us to yourself. And so filled by that love, please empower us and all your people to do the same for others now in this world that is gripped by fear and loneliness. And we pray that through our practical care, people might know that there is a greater hope that they can have. And as a result, come to the Lord Jesus, who laid down his life for them. And we pray it in his name. Amen.